Are you a scaredy cat or a brave yeah, guy? Yeah, oh gosh. Or? Yeah, no, I'm not a brave guy. I am somebody who has led expeditions to Antarctica, to both polar regions, to Africa, to China. And I am the person who, if you met me in, in high school, I, I'm the least likely person <laughs> to ever camp, okay, let alone lead expeditions. I didn't camp until I went on my first fossil okay. expedition in the first year, I second see. year of graduate school. From Quanta Magazine, this is the Joy of X. I'm Steve Strogatz. In this episode, Neil Shubin. And so, uh, so now I'm uh, yeah, I, I camp out you near know, minus forty degrees in Antarctica and lead expeditions there, but it wasn't my natural toolkit. Let's put it that way. I mean, Neil Shubin is is a man of many hats: a biologist, a paleontologist, a geologist. He's interested in deep history of the Earth and the life on the Earth. He's especially renowned for discovering some transitional creatures, in particular one that we think of as helping us understand how life made its trek from the sea to the land. I went to graduate school knowing I wanted to do paleontology because before then I was interested in all sorts of historical sciences. I almost went into uh, cosmology, astronomy. I loved you know, how you could link an understanding of the mechanisms of the cosmos to understand its history. I also loved archaeology as well for, for different reasons. So I went to graduate school to become a paleontology, uh, to become a paleontologist, but I didn't know what I wanted to study. I had sort of an inkling that I, I might want to study mammal evolution because because there are a lot of great puzzles and, and problems there. So I took a class, and it was kind of like a greatest hits in the history of life. And every week, we would hear about a different great transition in the history of vertebrate life. And I remember this was somewhere in the beginning of the class. The professor showed a slide, and it showed a fish on top, like a cartoon of a fossil fish on top. And it showed an early limbed animal, an early tetrapod on the bottom, and it had an arrow connecting them. And it showed all the differences, you know, uh, between the fish and the, the land-living animal. You know, and there were differences in the head. There are countless differences in the appendages, you know, from fins to limbs. There are just as a long list of changes there. <laughs> and I remember thinking, holy cow, that is a first-class scientific problem. I mean, how did fish evolve to walk on land? And I literally had the bug right there. And I started to dig into the literature and see what we knew and what we didn't know. And there were some fossils that were somewhat intermediate, but I'm thinking, you know, we could do a lot better. I mean, think about, you know, how do you go from a fin that's used in water to a limb, which a creature walks on land? How do creatures evolve to breathe on land, to, to live their lives? It just seemed like a giant revolution. So, you know, so <laughs> off I set. Well, it's, a, I mean, the courage and the nerve, the chutzpah. Interestingly, you know, and again, it just this sort of kismet. I was with a um, the senior professor who was teaching it was one of the world's great field expeditionary vertebrate paleontologists. He was already going off to understand the origin of mammals, like working in Arizona, working um, in Colorado, Montana, and so forth. And he was finding some great intermediates between reptiles. And mammals, and he had a simple toolkit that he was using, and I thought, well, golly, I can deploy that toolkit to understand the origin of tetrapods. And so I was sort of was set off to deploy the tools that he, conceptual tools he was using to find early mammal uh, ancestors to this this problem of the fish to tetrapod transition. You know, but when you're you know if you're a paleontologist and, and you want to you know find an important fossil that tells you about a great transition in the history of life, you know you look for places in the world that um, have you know three things. You know, first you look for places in the world 
that have rocks of the right age to answer whatever question interests you, mm -hmm. right? So if you're interested in the origin of mammals, you're going to look at rocks, or, you know, late Triassic, right? Uh, 210 million years old. If you're interested in the origin of tetrapods, what I am, you're looking in the Devonian. That's in rocks that are about 380 million years old, 370. Let me, let me have you pause there for those of us who aren't all plugged into these different ages. I mean, that's already an interesting bit of detective work that I, I take it that you sort of see in the fossil record there are things that really look like mammals after that time and there really aren't things that look, oh, sorry, not mammals, tetrapods, these four-legged critters. You see them after this time, but you don't see them before, so you know they're somewhere in there. Is that the reason? That's correct. No, that's exactly right. So 150 years of paleontologists going around the world, you know, finding stuff has, has really give us a, a timeline you know, where the first fish appear in the fossil record before the first limbed animals. The first ancient limbed animals appear in the fossil record before the first reptiles. The first reptiles appear in the fossil record before the first mammals, and on and on and on and on. And, you know, you can begin to leverage that to ask all kinds of questions. So I begin already having a timeline that other paleontologists you know, have, have exposed over a century and a half of... of yeah, and that's actually something I love about the collective enterprise of science, that, you know, with Newton's remark about building on the... or standing on the shoulders of giants, clearly you're doing that, right? You say there's all these... There are things that were known from your predecessors. And, and as you say, it's sort of like recapitulating that there's this historical science of evolution that studies the history of life on Earth. You get to use the history of discovery to, to know where to look. What you, what, oh, I should say when to look. What, what rocks of what age are going to have that's that. correct yeah that's correct and you really gain a, a i mean you become almost like a historian of science in some cases for some of these fields because you need to understand the challenges and the struggles that your predecessors had and oftentimes they were struggling albeit with different technologies with some of the same questions mm -hmm. you know and some of the same problem so in this case i already had a timeline a, a crude one that i could use and so i was looking for places in the world of the rocks of the right age then the next thing you do and again you're standing on the shoulder of giants just like you said we're looking for places in the world that have rocks of the right type to hold fossils. Not every kind of rock will hold a fossil for a variety of reasons. You can think about volcanic rocks, right? They're formed in lava. That's not going to hold fossils. Uh -huh. You can have rocks that are metamorphic, that are squeezed around under high pressures and sometimes very high temperatures. Those will destroy whatever fossils inside. Furthermore, you may have places in the world where the creatures didn't live. So you have to really think about what kinds of rocks, what kinds of environments that were in those rocks that those rocks represent, it would likely hold the, you know, the, the creatures you're looking for. You know, and, and here we're building on all kinds of science projects that have been done over the last hundred years. Countries, uh, oil and gas discovery firms, extraction mm. industries, Interesting. they map rocks in different parts of the sure. world. That's how you find, you look for places in the world that have rocks the right age, Rocks that are the right type to hold fossils, and rocks that you can access. And that's the way we turn a giant globe into a small number of places to look for that, fossils. That in itself is so interesting to me because there's that old joke about the, the guy that's looking for his keys under the, you know, the lamppost at night, yeah, well, that's right. right, late at night. And they say, why are you looking on there? Did you lose them there? And he says, no, but that's the only place where the light is any good. Well, my lamppost is where countries have decided to invest to map the rocks, right? Yeah. I only know those places where countries have made those investments or companies and so forth. So yeah, we, we started in Pennsylvania. I began with a graduate student by the name of Ted Deschler, who's now, I've worked with him for 30 years. He's now a curator, senior curator in Philly. And we started finding these fossils. We found early tetrapods. We found lots of lobe fin fish, you know, fish that are closely related to these tetrapods on road cuts in Pennsylvania, because these were rocks that were 365 million years old. 
These are rocks that were formed in ancient delta systems 365 million years ago. The state looked like, you know, the Amazon. Let me, sorry, I'm not sure I know this term road cut. Is that like I blow a hole in a mountain or something? Yeah, it's like blow a hole, you know, blow out of the side of a hill. So basically when you drive along Route 80 across the state, northern Pennsylvania, or the New York State Thruway up near where you are, you know, you're going to see cliff cliff walls of rock. And those were actually made by the Department of Transportation when they widened the roads, when they made the thruway or the highways. Um, they would actually detonate, and they would create these cliffs, and then they'd create piles of rock that they removed from you know, to make those cliffs to extend the roads. They'd create piles of rocks far out where they would dump them, and they would bury those, and they'd cover them with like vetch, and the plants would grow around them. But if we got really lucky, we would find a place where PennDOT widened the road in Devonian Age rocks, where they blew up a lot of Devonian rock and created piles and piles of of Devonian rock and cliff faces. And we'd look at both of those. We'd look at the cliff faces, and then we'd look at the piles of rock on the ground. And golly gee, there were fossils all over, (laughs) all over. We found fossil fish of, you know, fossil sharks, fossil insects, fossil plants, some early tetrapods. It was a field day. I really was. This was the early 90s. And, you know, three hours from my home in Philadelphia, we had a remarkable window into this ancient world. And this ancient world was when life was coming onto land. You know, you had plants coming first, then invertebrates, then later our distant relatives. It was just a whole world trapped in there. And I gotta say, aesthetically, one of the things that really strikes you, I was cracking the rocks along a road in Pennsylvania, and I'm finding tropical plants and big monstrous <laughs> fish that are about 15 feet long. Wow. These, these just bizarre, you know, lost world of critters. You know, and trucks would be whizzing by, honking at me. You know? <laughs> so, you know, you have this juxtaposition between present and past. Ted and I were like, you know, high-fiving each other regularly, finding wonderful creatures that were telling us about what this ancient world looked like 365 million years ago. <clears throat> but we realized soon into it that we had a problem. It looked like we were already finding limbed animals, tetrapods, that were kind of derived, kind of advanced, Mm -hmm. Hmm. not looking horribly primitive. So we felt we needed to move back in time about 10 to 15 million years. And eventually we, this total accident, okay? Ted and I were in my office at Penn, and we were having some argument about some geologic trivia. I have no idea what it was. It's not important anymore. But to settle the debate, I pulled out my college geology textbook from about 20 years before, okay? And settled the debate, and, you know, we're talking to each other, and I'm chewing the fat, turning the pages of the book, until I hit a diagram, which was to change my life, in a college geology textbook. This diagram was a map of North America, and it had superimposed on it where Devonian Age rocks existed across North America, and this included northern Canada. And the textbook authors identified three areas that had rock of Devonian age that were um, produced by ancient delta systems, you know, rivers and streams, i.e. the kinds of rocks we're looking for. Hmm. There was one patch that they marked in eastern, Pens- in central Pennsylvania and southern New York. Okay. Well, that's that the one we knew sounds about. Sounds good, right? yeah, but okay. Check that off the list. Yep, You've been check. there, done that. <laughs> Next was up in Greenland, and that was where some of the earliest tetrapods ever known, individuals found them in the fossil record working in the 20s and 30s, in Greenland. Um, And so we knew about that site. Yep, been there, done that. But then extending 1,500 kilometers east to west across the Canadian Arctic were a series of rocks that were mapped as Devonian, mapped as formed in ancient rivers and streams from ancient delta systems. But in this case, they weren't 365 million years old. They were about 375, maybe a little bit older. Mm. 
I looked at Ted and he looked at me. I said, Ted, do you know anybody who's worked on these rocks? Said, I don't know. Do you? I said, Ted, I just asked you that question. <laughs> we went back and forth like, whoa, nobody's worked these rocks. Yeah. So we ran to the library, which is what you did. This is the mid-late 90s. I remember. Right? Libraries. Yeah, remember those I things do. with paper I, yeah. and stuff? Yeah, yeah. So we ran to the library and dug out the a journal, the Canadian Journal of Petroleum Geology. Uh-huh. It had... Maps of these rocks in the Canadian Arctic. It had their, they dated them using some crude methods, but it was clearly the right kind of rock. It was just remarkable. Ted and I were like, this is our next step. And uh, I was like, how are we going to do this? I mean, because now I'm used to driving three hours in my Subaru to central Pennsylvania. Now you don't do that to get to the, this, these are up in the Arctic. These are 500 miles from the North Pole. There are polar bears up there. <laughs> there's, you know, there's lots of stuff going. I mean, you got to, yes. it's a big time expedition. So it took us a while to get our act together to get there. But eventually, Neil and his team did get there. They made it up to the Canadian Arctic, and they were on the hunt, pursuing this fantastic mystery story, looking for this transitional creature that they imagined had to exist. It had to be some kind of a thing between a fish with gills and fins and a tetrapod, some kind of four-legged creature walking around on the earth with lungs and limbs. But Neil and his team weren't just poking around in the dark. They had a very clear idea of what they were looking for and where they might find it. You go in the summer or the winter, or does it matter? So, yeah, it totally matters. So this is the Canadian Arctic. So, you know, the the season there is July. So essentially, you know, we go at the height of summer. And so the height of summer, the sun essentially does a big ellipse in the sky. Temperature, you know, varies. It's below freezing, but not much. Mm -hmm. It could be damp and really cold and windy. Wind is just a constant companion there. So it's you and Ted and how many other people? About six people. We've had as many as eight to ten. Should I think like the latitude of some place? that I've heard of, like, what, something in Alaska or, or uh, more? It's north of anything in Alaska. North of anything so in Alaska. Think about sort of northern part of Greenland, that kind of thing. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, so we're up there. Yeah, we're way up there. You know, it's daylight 24 hours a day. So you have to, God, you realize just how we depend, our circadian rhythms are so deep. So there's a lot to overcome, a lot of logistics to learn. You know, you have to pack your own food. You have to bring firearms, your, your camping gear. And the other is you have to bring a good attitude. It's a small world there, and it can be very intense. And if you're not finding anything, you have to think about the things that people need to remain focused and happy and you know, mm-hmm. and feeling good about themselves and about the science. So do I picture you all with shovels or picks or hammers or uh, what? Yeah, hammers, sometimes picks if we're cracking into the rock. But really kind of it's more a day pack filled with emergency supplies, usually a gun strapped to my back up there because of polar bears if we're on the coast. Uh, you don't have to carry water because you can basically, the snow and the ice melt comes right out. You can, I bring a mug, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is great. And, uh, you know, we we spend the entire, entire days just walking, looking at the rocks, looking at the surface of the rocks, bringing our geological maps, and looking for places where the bones are weathering out on the surface. I see. So you're actually just, so you're, it's, it's not like you're kneeling and hammering. You're walking around looking at rocks. Initially. Yep. Initially, we're looking for where the bones are and literally and kind of where they're weathering out. And we'll find little pods of that. In some cases, you know, you'll find, you know, a whole skeleton just weathering you out. Mean other weathering cases, out means it's sticking out the side of a face yeah, of a rock? Little, imagine a cliff, right? Or a badlands. And you have layers and one layer might have lots of bones spilling out of it. And you'll follow those that, that trail of bone to the layer that's producing them, dig into that layer 
and expose it. And, you know, if you have any luck at all, you'll find whole skeletons or partial skeletons. Okay. So we're walking around really kind of looking at the rocks, trying to figure out the geology. It's like a puzzle we're trying to solve. Where are these bones likely to be? And then we'll, depending on, you know, how fossiliferous they are, we can see spots that have uh, lots of bone weathering out. And that's exactly what happened here. We brought a college student, Jason Downs, who happened on this a layer, which had thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, fossil um, fragments weathering out of it, just a carpet of bones. And we traced that carpet of bones to one layer that had, it's basically a catastrophic event, had buried a lot of animals at once, one skeleton on top of the other. And when it was weathering out, that's what produced on the side of the hill, that carpet of fragments of bones. But when we cracked inside the layer, that's when we saw skeleton after skeleton piled one on top of the other. Hmm. And, and by 2002, we had that layer, and we had a suspicion that what we're looking for might be in that layer. So we decided to go back in 2004. So that was our fourth trip after six years of working on the expedition. And cracking the lair, we start, we, one of my colleagues uh, was cracking the rocks. We were working the lair. Each of us was pulling out skeletons with different kinds of fish. Then one day, one of my colleagues, uh, Steve Gatesy, who's uh, now at Brown, said, hey, guys, what's this? And you know, I ran over and sticking out of the side of the hill that he was digging in was the skull of a fish. Uh, but it was very clear that it was very special fish. That is, you know, uh, this, if you think about the transition from fish to limbed animal, you have changes in the head, you have changes in the fins. But one of the big changes of the head is you go from a conical-shaped head to a very flat-shaped head, almost like a crocodile-like animal. Uh -huh. And here I had a flat-headed fish staring. It was a flat head, clearly a flat head. So I had a tetrapod-like head staring out at me in really old rocks. And so we were pretty clear. It was pretty obvious that we had found what we were looking for. Then we um, jumped up and down a little bit, and then um, – <laughs> So at this then, point, just the head is sticking out. Yeah, or actually just the tip just, of the snout. Just the snout. Literally the tip of the snout, and it looked like it had a really flat snout. And so we're looking at it, and I'm saying, well, this is, this is central casting exactly what we wanted, <laughs> right? I mean, because the rest of the – if we had any luck whatsoever, the rest of the skeleton would be in that cliff. And it turned out to be correct. I mean, we brought the block home. It was prepared out. And that process took a long time, but at, it was one of the most exciting time periods of my life. Ted and I would be on the phone every day. And, you know, I say, Ted, what do you see on your end? And I say, well, I see the flat head. It looks, oh, man, it's just beautiful. I said, yeah, Ted, we got a shoulder. You got to see the size of this shoulder. Wait a second, this is a fish with a shoulder. Yeah, oh, yeah, big shoulder. I mean, that's a big punchline, isn't it? Yeah, well, it gets even better because then we started to dig out the upper arm, the forearm, and even the wrist. <laughs> you know, it had a neck. And yet it was a fish with scales and, you know, and had a fish-like architecture to part of its skull. And it's like, we were just like, that was a period of about eight, eight months where these, these things were being revealed in 2005. And, you know, at the time there was a trial going on in Pennsylvania about intelligent design creationism being taught in schools. And people are arguing that there are no transitional fossils in the fossil record. You know, and here we designed an expedition to find one. And it's merging as we speak, a fish with arms and wrists mm. and elbows. Oh, crazy. And lungs and, and all that stuff. Wow. This story really hit me emotionally, not just intellectually, because it just underscores how we're part of all like this one big long chain of being on Earth. We're part of one evolutionary family. Um, you know, and it's such an extraordinary adventure story, too. Think of the tremendous determination it took for Neil and his team to keep going back to the Arctic year after year, not knowing if they're going to find anything. And then finally, they did. They found Tiktaalik. This is a, you know, the missing link they were looking for. They named it that because it's, um, 
sort of in homage to the indigenous people in the region where the, the fossil was found. Tiktaalik in Nunavut means a large freshwater fish. Well, let me ask a few uh, more intimate questions. So when you're up there having season after season with maybe finding some things, but not really what you're hunting for, were you married at this time or within a relationship? Yeah, I mean, would yeah. You, would you, oh, yeah. I, do you have some kind of phone that you can call back home with? Yeah. So you have, you know, and what happens, on, it's really hard sometimes. You know, relatives pass away, right? Oh, yeah. I'm there for six weeks. You know, and initially, we, you know, we have a cell phone, a sat phone. Mm-hmm. There's no cell coverage. There's no, no wireless. Sure. But, um, you know, we have a sat phone, so I'd call home every now and then. Uh, but, you know, things were happen. Were there kids it's at home at that point? Adopting. We were adopting. You were adopting. So you're, point. I mean, I'm just thinking, like, what it's like for me when I go away on a trip. And if I would go away on a trip and, and then the question was, well, like, what got accomplished? And I'd say, well, this is the fourth time I've tried and this was another dud. I mean, I'm exaggerating. I'm sure you were no, finding some you're stuff. you're actually recounting the story of my well, life. Well, that's what I mean, I, I would, I'm wondering. <laughs> how, that must be so hard. To, yeah, it takes a village. Let's put it that way. I um, I would come home. I remember one of the most challenging f- years was 2002. There was a lot going on uh, for all of us at home. And um, I had uh, come, gone to the Arctic and came back. It was our third season there. I was asked, uh, I said, you know, what did you find? Your f-? It became known as the fish. Did you find your fish? Yeah, do you find your fish? No, I didn't. No, I didn't oh, Dad. And I didn't. I mean, it's like, <laughs> no, when's this going to end? <laughs> it's like, uh. it was tough. It would actually be hard. Um, but everybody, you know, look, I, you don't do this without a ton of support. Sure. Right? And so, and that's what that's what it takes. Because we're, we're not successful, but a small fraction of the time. Most of the time, I'm a total failure. <laughs> I'm learning from my failures. But, you know, still, they're failures. After the break, fish doctors lazy bakers, and salamander tongues. If you're enjoying the Joy of X podcast, you'll also like Quanta Magazine. Our award-winning reporters bring you the biggest discoveries in math, physics, computer science, and biology. Quanta Magazine will change the way you understand how the universe and everything in it works. Learn more at quantamagazine.org. Quanta Magazine, we illuminate science because you want to know more. I have a dog I love very much named Murray, who um, I was I was stroking. I mean, I like to pet him. He's, he's lying. He's kind of tired. We had a good day of running around with his girlfriend out in the woods. And it just kind of freaked me out as I went from his shoulder to feel his, what would be like his upper arm for his front. You know, that he has this big bone there and he's got like an ulna and a radius in his forearm. Oh, yeah. And he's got five toes. And, yep. you know, I mean, I don't have to tell you, but it's just kind of an amazing thing that his arm is like my arm. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of the great examples from the you know, from from the biological world um, that is if you look at arms legs of creatures that live on land like us you know you have what do you got you got one bone the humerus right you got two bones the radius and ulna you got little wrist bones and then you got the digits the fingers and same thing applies to the hind limb you know upper leg mid leg and you know ankle bones and toes one bone two bones little bones fingers 
Um, and you see that. You see that in people. You see that in Murray, the dog. You see that in salamanders. You see that in birds. You see it in whales that have returned to the sea. You see That's it in amazing. bats that fly. It's this beautifully, it's this beautiful archetype, this underlying order to diversity of vertebrate appendages. And Darwin made a very specific prediction that, you know, and, and, and bi biologists who were um, inspired by Darwin said, you know, we should find versions of this in, you know, in, in fish. And that's, wow. if you look at the, if you look at the fin of Tiktaalik, it has fin rays, right? Just like a fish fin, right? Just those webbing, you know, you remove that webbing. What do you see? You see one bone, humerus, two bones, radius and ulna. You see a wrist bone or a few wrist bones, and you see things that can correspond to uh, digits. That's, that's what I wanted you to say. <laughs> So, you know, I mean, that's, so we see that incredible? Of that. Uh, it's, you know, it never ceases to blow my mind. And it never ceases to blow my mind that that's knowable, right? That we can use the tools of historical geology, of paleontology to find those things, you know? And we can see how it was established over time, you know? And then other fish, if we look even more distant in the fossil record, we see fish that have some but not all that pattern. So we can see this underlying order to the diversity, um, uh, but we can also see how it was, uh, you know, assembled over evolutionary time using the right tools. Mm. You know, and I remember when I was teaching, when I was, when we found Tiktaalik, I was teaching human anatomy in the medical school at the time. A human anatomy lab, we're talking about cadavers. Medical students, cadavers. Yeah, yeah this is the first year medical class. Right. And, and, the, and these, you know, these future physicians were asking me, you know, Dr. Shu, what kind of doc do you, you know? They're, you know, are you a cardiologist yeah, sure. or a neurosurgeon? <laughs> uh, no, I'm a uh, paleontologist. I happen to work on fish. <laughs> you know, like, they're like, what? Give me my money back. <laughs> but it, you know, but it became clear that like knowing the evolutionary history is a very powerful way to teach human anatomy. So for me, you know, the limbs, the head, um, the, the the basic structures and basic architecture of our body were originally established in you know fish living in aquatic ecosystems, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago, and that's knowable, deeply knowable from the fossils, from comparative anatomy, from all kinds of other disciplines, including molecular biology. That it just became a joy to teach in terms of the human anatomy course in the medical school. So that's why all these connections were so very important to me and not only in my research, but also in like the ways that I communicate science. That's an interesting point there. What to say a little more what you mean about that? You know, I was teaching the medical students and you know, they're like, you know, what's a fish paleontologist doing, you know, teaching human anatomy? Yeah. Um, and that actually became a book. That became Your Inner Fish, okay. which is my first book. <laughs> Because, you know, really connecting that, showing how, you know, inside of our bodies, inside of every organ, every tissue, every cell, you know, most every part of DNA inside those cells is billions of years of history of life, artifacts of that history. You know, it's just like looking at the sky. That's history. And, you know, that's just basically looking inside their body. So when you know how to look, our body is filled with history, artifacts at every level. And so... And I see it and I live it, you know, as a paleontologist. But then bringing that story and the diverse fields that tell us that story, you know, became my first public effort in communicating science. And that was inner fish. I mean, I feel a sympathy with what you're saying. I don't mean sad sympathy. I mean, like you look at something and you see history. You see deep history. I look at something and I see math. You know? Well, that's right. You're, you're exactly. It changes the way you see the world, yeah. right? And part of your joy as a mathematician, or in my case, as a historical biologist, geologist, is in explaining that. And when you see some the light go on in somebody and they, all of a sudden they see the world like you do, it's actually, it's really kind of fun. <laughs> and it's, that's true for me when I look at a road cut in Pennsylvania or in, in New York. You know, I see ancient oceans. I see ancient rivers. 
when I look at the body and, you know, when you know how to look, I'll see the history we share, you know, with dogs and with salamanders and with fish and so forth and our limbs and elsewhere. You know, it changes the way you see the world. And there's a joy in that. One of the things that makes Neil's work so interesting to me is that he looks at biology from so many different perspectives. On the one hand, he's thinking about history and geology. On the other hand, he's thinking about molecular biology and development and genes. And, you know, that's partly why Neil doesn't totally agree with a popular idea in evolutionary biology that goes by the name of contingency. Contingency is the idea that accidents and randomness dominate the story of evolution. Like, think of the asteroid that just happened to hit the Earth 65 million years ago and wiped out the dinosaurs and made room for mammals. Or think about the weird backwards anatomy of the human eye, where our nerves enter our retinas from the front and cause a blind spot and get in the way. That seems like some kind of weird evolutionary accident. That's not the way you would have designed anything. We're just stuck with it. But Neil is pushing against this idea of contingency as a dominant force because he sees a lot of logic in evolution. You know, if you think about organisms, they have common genes. Right. They have common developmental processes. You know, if you have similar sort of initial conditions and boundary conditions, the outputs might be very similar in different cases. Exactly. That is, you might have the independent evolution of similar states may be more regular uh, than you'd predict if you subscribe to a completely contingent view of evolutionary change. And indeed, if you think, if you look at the evolutionary record, it's just loaded with multiples, loaded with cases where you know similar inventions have have happened independently. And for a long time, people thought these were confounding factors that they you know they just get in the way of our ability to reconstruct the patterns of history of life. But you know, the more we look, the more we realize that 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 mess is really the message that similar outcomes can, can happen, arise independently, you know, just given the basic biology of creatures. And, you know, it's not unusual that, you know, every creature that flies is some sort of wing, right? I mean, <laughs> but it gets more, it gets less trivial, right? It starts getting downright wacky. <laughs> so it's like one of the examples I use in my book, I, um, I look at salamander tongues, which is this incredible invention. And it was uh, one of my mentors, David Wake at Berkeley, who's been working on salamanders and their tongues for years. <laughs> But it sounds like strange, right? It's a little strange. Yeah, I mean, salamanders would be good enough, but no, not that. I'm not. I'm going to specialize to salamander tongues. Yeah, they. But then when you sit with him, your mind gets blown, just like any scientist sure. at the top of their game working on whatever system. So there are two kinds of animals in the world, right? There are animals that bring their mouth to the prey. Yeah, think lions, and there are animals that bring the prey to their mouth, right? <laughs> nice think salamanders that flip out their tongue and bring it back. So salamanders um, have this amazingly specialized tongue, and um, they they it's ballistic. They kick it out with a variety of specialized structures. What they do is they shoot a series of gill bones wrapped in connective tissue, tethered to a tongue, shoots out half a body length in seven milliseconds, hits an insect, and then it, the whole thing just as fast comes back in the mouth. I'm picturing, it's almost like a pop gun or something with, that's got a yeah. cork or something. That's right. Gra- that's right. Is that right? You tell it me, what's out. the right metaphor? And so this basically is something hard in connective tissue, tethered to a, an, an elastic like mem- connective tissue that kicks out at se- you know, half a body length in seven milliseconds and then comes back after, after it, attaching the... To the insect is it a sticky it thing or is it a grabby thing? Yeah, it's a thing? sticky pad. It has a sticky pad at the end. And that sticky pad just it brings the – it attaches to the insect and then 
in the insects attached to it, and then is, is reeled in, um, the, unbelievable. in the mouth. And it involves very specialized structures. Those are gill bones that are modified. It's, it's basically shooting out faster than the contraction of the muscles could do. So basically, it's a system that's functioning like a, you know, like a slingshot almost. Okay. And uh, it involves, you know, countless changes to the head, to the muscles, to the body, and behavioral changes, neurobiological changes as well. So that's, I mean, when you think about that, it's an amazing biological machine. But what's even more amazing about it is when Wake looked at the evolutionary history of salamanders, he found that that amazingly complicated biological machine evolved at least four times independently. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's nothing contingent about that. No, and, exactly. And and then that, I mean, it's the same mechanism, you know. And each of those salamanders that did it had some properties that were similar. Number one, they had similar patterns of embryological development. Uh, number two, they had lungs. They didn't use the gills to breathe in adult stages. And they also didn't have larval stages. Wait, so, so their, their lung, you say they did not use their lungs to breathe? They had lungs to breathe. They didn't use their gills to breathe. Oh, they actually so they so they lungs, have lungs. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in this case, you had certain preconditions. When those preconditions were met, those those groups of salamanders evolved, uh, tended to evolve this uh, this amazing biological machine. Hmm. So uh, independently, you know, and so we see that again and again and again. We see, you know, the independent evolution of similar um, body plans in different animals. We see the independent evolution of similar types of limbs in different creatures. And again, uh, it's this, uh, it's the, basically there are sort of biases. There are certain outcomes that are more likely than others, and we see them happening repeatedly. Apparently, some of the same structures can evolve over and over independently because the dice are loaded. You could say it that way. You know, evolution is sometimes playing with random dice that are actually loaded dice. They favor certain outcomes. And so you see certain things popping up again and again. There's a story about 2,000 salamander feet that, yeah, where you showed right. a kind of bias. I had finished at Harvard, and then I went to Berkeley to enjoy the California sun. But like within about uh, three months of me arriving in Berkeley, uh, it was hit with uh, the coldest freeze snap it had in years. And so what it did is it got really cold up in Point Reyes National Seashore, which is just in Marin County, just north of um, Berkeley, the Bay Area. And the, some of these ponds, ephemeral ponds, froze, and in so doing, left the carcasses of thousands upon thousands of salamanders. So I was in David Wake's office. He's the gentleman I was telling you about with the salamander tongues. And he was on the phone with somebody from the National Park Service saying, hey, we've got thousands of salamanders that were killed in this freak freeze. What do you want them? What do you want? And I'm like, <laughs> And he looks, he says, you can use thousands of salamanders? Said, yeah, we got, let's look at variation. Let's look at the variation of their hands and feet to find out if there are common rules to how they vary. So we got the salamanders, and then we spent about uh, a year, uh, no, close to a year and a half, two years, preparing them in such a way that we could see inside their limbs. We'd clear and stain them. So what you can do is take the body, and you could treat it with chemicals so that at the end result, after um, a couple weeks to a month, you could s- the, the body becomes clear oh. and the bones stain red and blue. Oh, it's wow. really amazing. Ooh. It's true. These are like things that are like works of art. Yeah. Anyway, we did that with all these things and we could see all their limbs and we could see their little tiny bones that make up their wrists and their ankles. There are about nine or ten of them. And we mapped those bones out and we found when we mapped them out that certain kinds of variation were much more common than others. Certain bones would fuse together where, where you would have two or three bones. Primitively, in, in, in some variants, you'd have just one big one where it was clearly fused. In others, bones would split apart in different ways. And so we made a catalog of all that variation, and we found, wow, the variation we see in these populations of thousands of salamanders is not random at all. 
Certain variants are way more common than others. Okay, that's kind of interesting, but nothing revolutionary there. But then we started to look at salamander history, the evolutionary history of salamanders, and it turns out that the patterns of variation we saw in that population that were most common were the most common patterns that you'd see in the evolution of other groups of salamanders. And furthermore, those patterns were ones that would appear independently again and again in different kinds of salamanders. So it seemed to be there, a, there was a signal that we were seeing that, number one, the evolutionary history of salamanders had, it was, was riddled with multiples, that is, the independent evolution of not only similar kinds of projectile tongues, but also the patterns of limb bones. And then we were seeing insights of that to the way that the variation within the populations of salamanders were, were biased themselves. So this is a long way of saying that what we were seeing is a window into why the evolution of salamander hands and feet was riddled with multiples, was not contingent, because the patterns of variation that existed within the species was themselves constrained. It's almost like if you have a recipe with certain ingredients and certain processes, it's going to bias the outcomes of the kinds of cupcakes or you know, <laughs> things you can produce, right? In this case, it's bodies. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and the recipe and you know, ingredients, the ingredients in this case are the proteins and genes. The recipe is how those genes interact and how those cells interact. Let's go with that a little bit. Let's move into the kitchen because you, you have an analogy in the, um, this new book, Some Assembly Required, that I really liked where you say, Mother Nature is a lazy baker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> One thing we've learned is that there are common biological processes that underlie everything from fruit flies to people. And, and that those biological recipes, similar genes doing similar kinds of things, similar embryological processes and development that make organs as different as, you know, fly legs and human arms, those are really remarkable in the way that they can power new kinds of research, um, but in, the, in what they're telling us about evolution. So, for instance, one of the big turning points of my career was a sort of a revolution that happened in the 1980s where people were beginning to um, uncover some of the genes that build bodies. And they were finding that some of the genes that control the body architecture, which organs are in which part of a fly's body, mm -hmm. they were beginning to understand that. But it turns out that they were finding them, those same genes in mice and people, mm. doing similar kinds of things. Mm. I remember seeing those papers and thinking, oh, my goodness, I, uh, I need a new toolkit. <laughs> I was trained to be a paleontologist. Now I got to shift over to do a little more molecular biology and development, which is eventually what I ended up doing much more of. You know, what we're seeing through several decades now of molecular biology is sort of commonalities, connections of the toolkits that build bodies as different as flies, worms, fish, and people. Each of those critters has parts of the toolkit that build our own bodies, that the insights of the basic biology from flies and worms, you know, are really giving us deep insights into our biology. And the only reason that is true is because of evolution, right? Because we share an evolutionary past and that nature has been this lazy baker <laughs> that is these mechanisms uh, for building bodies and organs and so forth uh, exist as modules that are redeployed over and over again and modified. So it's a very powerful window into how we approach science now. Uh, but it also tells us something powerfully about evolution, right? That we're seeing antecedents of structures that are way more ancient and different than we could have ever expected because similar kinds of genes exist in people and flies. So, I mean, another thing that, that occurs to me is more broadly, evolution can refer to all kinds of things besides living things, like languages evolve, cultures evolve, 
inventions, oh, yeah. right? I mean, technology, technology, about, exactly, exactly. So I'm I'm wondering if you have some thoughts for us about that. How, what we can learn about the nature of invention and innovation generally. One thing I was impressed with when I was thinking about the new book, and I was thinking about the story of multiples, independent origins of different body plans, organs in the evolutionary record, I started to look at the record from the business world, technological world in terms of inventions. And of course, the world of multiples is really profound in the technological world. Think of an invention. It's been invented. It came about any particular invention likely came about multiple times independently at the same time with different inventors, just like evolution does. So there's you know something in the air mm -hmm. that fosters and uh, you know technological inventions. The same thing is true in biology. There's something in the air. It's it's understanding the mechanisms in biology that bring it. So about like what should what should we conditions. remember from recent past? Like VHS and beta were two different. There are they yeah the telephone Alexander Graham Bell. There was okay. somebody else who came up with the telephone. Uh, at the same time. Yep. Um, you know, you can look at almost any particular invention. It had multiple inventors. It was probably invented multiple times independently, at least in, in germ form. And tracing the antecedents of, in, of inventions becomes, you know, an incredibly challenging task. That's why, you know, patent lawyers are their whole, <laughs> their whole discipline. Mm -hmm. um, if it was easy, they wouldn't have jobs. But it's really hard and it's really challenging. And that's the exact same thing we see in evolutionary history. There's a couple patterns. Number one is the invention that's associated with the biological revolution is almost never associated with that biological evolution <laughs> evolutionarily. <laughs> Think about lungs, right? Fish, you know, creatures that walk on land have lungs, and lungs are an invention to live on land. Feathers are an invention to fly, right? All those things, if you think about them, they're so obvious that they're logical and true. But the reality is we trace those inventions, what we discover is those simple stories are never true. Lungs originally arose in fish living in water. Feathers arose in dinosaur creatures that were needed thermoregulation, sexual signals, and so forth. So inventions, one of the biggest things behind the origin of inventions is not just the structure of the invention itself, but the way it's used and the way it's deployed. Mm -hmm. And that's true with technology as well. The difference is, though, kind of depends on how information is transferred from entity to entity. So biologically, we have two ways of transferring information. So from generation to generation, so-called vertical, you know, from, you know, from parent to offspring. Uh -huh. And that's their classic Darwinian evolution, yeah. right? But then there's the other kind of evolution that happens like when, you know, you share an idea, a mathematical idea with me, and I share it with 10 other people, and they share it with 50 other people, and that spreads really fast, right? So it's culture practices and so forth. That's horizontal transformation, uh, uh, transfer of information. Uh, we've seen it in the distant past. About 10% of our genome is composed of defunct uh, viruses that have been put to use in different ways or been been relic extinct. But the process of invention, which consists of origins and disruptive inventions which change the world um, is itself really complicated because the you know the search for antecedents of inventions always takes us to places that are truly surprising that we would never expect and I think the same thing is true for biological inventions as it is for uh -huh. technological well, so I mean a classic one is the printing press which grew out of something that used to be for pressing wine for grapes there are other cases too, like sticky notes and soft glues. But what was it about sticky tape again? The, the, the idea was the sticky. So they basically had these soft glues, and so one somebody at 3M decided that you know they, they had these glues that were not like really super strong. Yeah. And the idea was, well, why would you want a glue that's not super strong? So somebody kind of figured out, well, if I just take this like sort of soft glue and put it on the back of a piece of paper, I can like you know make little notes to myself. <laughs> so sometimes the you know great inventions or great moments in evolution, we only know 
uh, post hoc, right? We only know them looking backwards. So like if, if you and I were to take a um, time machine and we were to go back about 375 million years ago, and you know, first of all, we'd need air tanks to breathe. There wouldn't be enough oxygen for us, but that's beside the point. But anyway, so we get it down there. Uh, and we're looking in these like ancient Devonian rivers and streams, and we're looking at all the fish in there. I don't know if you or me could predict the true evolutionary. If we saw Tiktaalik in that stream, would I would we be able to say without knowing what Tiktaalik's descendants and cousins did that it was a revolutionary <laughs> that was going to lead to a whole new gig? No, you'd see a fl- fish with a flathead with a crazy fin. That was flapping around in the mud. You'd probably think it was kind of lame, you know. <laughs> Is that, so that ar- the thing that later became our arms, <laughs> yeah, exactly, was at was the time a kind of lame fin. You're saying was walking on the bi- water, b- bottom of the water, walking in mud flats. It was a fin, but it wasn't the best fin in that. No. It was a good fin for supporting the body. But you wouldn't know at the time. We'd only know after seeing its descendants that it was so successful. Mm. Right? And so, you know, a lot of these great inventions and great transformations, we only know by looking backwards. You, you summarize it very well with a quote in the book that I had never heard before, something like, nothing ever begins when you think it does. Yeah. So I was writing this book and I, you know, and I was just doing some reading outside of biology and I was reading about Lillian Hellman. She had quite the life, quite the human being. Anyway, I was reading it. There was a quote that she has. She says, nothing, of course, begins at the time you think it did. Huh. And that was from her. She was talking about her own life. I was thinking, well, that's biology in a nutshell. <laughs> you know, that's the story I want to tell. That's kind of what I work on as a paleontologist. It's always deeply surprising. And again, the texture of those surprises is what informs us about fundamental mechanisms of biology, you know, how these things arose, how the genes were changed or the developmental processes changed. Is there something you can tell us about what you're thinking about now? Are you still trying to think about transitions or? Yeah, very much. So um, a couple things. One of the big things we're thinking about in the laboratory right now is if you look at our arms, if if I was to get my hand cut off, it wouldn't grow back. Yet, if you look at salamanders, we're getting back to salamanders. This is not their tongue. If you cut off a salamander's arm, the entire thing grows Unbelievable. back. Unbelievable. Bones, yeah, right. muscles, nerves, blood vessels. Yeah. And it turns out salamanders are not unusual, that other critters do it as well, mm-hmm. lungfish, and fish generally. So it seems to be that it's not like salamanders evolved this amazing re, uh, regenerative ability. Um, it's we, our lineage has lost it. Uh-huh. So what we want to do is use evolutionary principles to understand regeneration. Oh. When Neil probes the mysteries of how salamanders can regenerate their limbs, I see him as a scientist striding across a lot of different swaths of biology, all kinds of different scales. You know, from the smallest scale, like genes and molecules, up to the next level of organ systems and then whole organisms, and finally up to the level of entire populations or communities. Well, You know, we often have different names for the biologists who study these different scales, but Neil is doing all of it. He is a biologist in the broadest sense. He thinks about all of life at every different level, and I think it's a really beautiful and thrilling picture to look at life that way as this one big unified story. Next time on The Joy of X, Biologist Bonnie Bassler on her cutting-edge discoveries about the communal life of bacteria. So you're a huge host. If a couple bacteria get in me and they dribble out a couple of these poisons or toxins, nothing is going to happen. But if they wait and they count themselves and they recognize that if all of us secrete these poisons together like an army, then these exoproducts, these proteins will have 
consequences to the host, right? And they might be able to overwhelm your immune system. Mm-hmm. The Joy of X is a podcast project of Quanta Magazine. We're produced by Story Mechanics. Our producers are Dana Bialik and Camille Peterson. Our music is composed by Yuri Weber and Charles Michelet. Ellen Horn is our executive producer. From Quanta, our editorial advisors are Thomas Lynn and John Rennie. Our sound engineers are Charles Michelet and at the Cornell University Broadcast Studio, Glenn Palmer and Bertrand Odom-Reed, who I like to call Bert. I'm Steve Strogatz. Thanks for listening.